you can open up your copy of the Bible if you have one to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be uh, in Hebrews chapter 10. We're not going to quite finish that chapter this morning, uh, but we are going to get closer. Uh, and next Sunday, just as a heads up, uh, Pastor Larry is going to be preaching what we'd call like a standalone sermon. So we're going to take one week to move out of the book of Hebrews. He's going to preach a message uh, called Impossible uh, from one short verse in Acts chapter 2. And so I very much look forward to hearing that and hope that you can uh, come back next Sunday as well. We even have some invitations that will be available out in the lobby afterwards if you want to take one or a few with you uh, to take to a neighbor or to a relative or a co-worker who's not part of a church family or maybe doesn't even know Christ at all. Uh, just a simple way that you can invite them to join you at 1015 next Sunday for Easter Sunday. Um, but if you're in Hebrews 10, we're going to be uh, starting verse 26 this morning. We're going to work our way through one paragraph. So you can keep trying to find that. Hebrews 10, 26. Uh, but this text, and I think you'll see why as we get into it, made me think about a sermon I heard about even as a kid. Uh, one of the most famous sermons ever delivered in the English language, at least as far as I know. A sermon uh, that was delivered by a pastor named Jonathan Edwards back in 1741, so almost 300 years ago. A, a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, some of you have probably heard of that sermon. Uh, it, it wasn't delivered from this morning's passage. It was actually delivered, it was about, his message was about a text from the book of Deuteronomy that gets quoted in today's passage. Uh, but the title of that message, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, does find its origin in today's text, even in the last verse that I'm going to read uh, here in just a moment. And in that sermon, and you can find it online very easily, you could read it to yourself, people have done different audio recordings, renditions of it, uh, but you can find it pretty easily and, and listen to it or read it yourself, but you'll see or hear in it that Pastor Jonathan Edwards spoke very candidly, very pointedly about the subject of hell and about the subject of God's judgment. Uh, and he was trying to help his congregants, the, all the hearers that were there that day, to face the reality of God's wrath. And the certainty that apart from Christ, they would face it, that they would experience it. Uh, and that when he delivered that, based on all accounts that we have of it, when he, and he delivered it a few times in a few different places, but each time that he delivered it, all accounts were that that sermon had a profound and immediate impact on many, many people who heard it. That it didn't just fall upon deaf ears, but God used it in really significant ways to bring people to repentance. It was even used, some of you have heard of what is called the Great Awakening. Uh, there was a few of them, but that sermon that he delivered a few different times was used in large part to help spur and start the first Great Awakening here in the colonies. Uh, that uh, was 300 years ago. Yet, if you look around today much, or if you hear about this sermon much, this is how I first heard of it as a young uh, guy in school, that sermon is often scoffed at or is viewed as kind of a relic of the past where people were just preaching hellfire and brimstone and it's almost just looked down upon as a manipulative attempt to just terrorize people and to just scare them into belief in Christ. When if you read it with a, a generous spirit, I think, it was actually an attempt from Jonathan Edwards to actually bring sinners low to help us see our condition, our common condition and the wrath of God that awaits us not just to terrorize, but so that we would set our hope upon Christ. 
and what he has endured for us, what he has gained for us. That was what it was intended to do. And we don't hear sermons like sinners in the hands of an angry God very often today. Uh, we, we, it is rare. They're few and far between. Most, if you did most, a poll of many Americans, most modern-day Americans, I would guess people barely even believe in hell, let alone fear it, Right? Uh, even a large number of Christians, people who are church-going people, uh, have ignored the subject of hell. Like It's in the background of our mind. We don't think about it almost at all. We rarely contemplate the horrors of hell and the, the danger that it is. We even make fun of preachers that we call hellfire and brimstone preachers sometimes. Or we think that they're doing something out of place, that they're doing something that they should not And the subject of God's judgment, the subject of hell, is not a pleasant one, right? It's not one that we run to. Uh, It can be fear-inducing. In some ways, it should be fear-inducing. Yet, in today's text, it is here, front and center. Uh, The author of Hebrews, whoever he was, was writing it. Uh, He was not pulling punches. He wasn't holding this back. He put it right there for them to hear, for them to read, and for it to have an impact upon their heart. And if he was not averse to discussing it, if the Holy Spirit who inspired him was not averse to putting this in the scriptures for us, then we shouldn't be averse to reading it and contemplating it and thinking about what relevance it has for us and then what relevance it has for the people that we know and that we care about. And so I'm going to read this here in just a moment, this paragraph, verses 26 through 31. But just so you kind of know where we are in the Bible and in this letter, uh, this author, whoever he was, was writing to a group of early Jewish Christians. Uh, they, they had come to faith in Jesus as Jews. They had grown up hearing the law of God, but now they'd heard that the Messiah, Jesus, had come and been crucified and raised. They believed in him. But they were being tempted to fall back. And we're going to see that in uh, two Sundays from now's text most clearly. How they were being tempted to fall back to Jewish practices. To fall back away from a direct, explicit faith in Jesus alone. And the author again and again and again. I've said this almost every Sunday. But again and again and again he's calling them to press on in faith. To persevere in their trust and their faithfulness toward Christ. If you were here last Sunday, you saw the paragraph before. Verses 19 to 25. Uh, the author was giving positive exhortations like do this, let us do this, let us do that, let us do that to, to draw near to Jesus, to hold fast to the confession of our hope and to, to consider how to stir each other up to love and good works. But if you were here, you saw the very last phrase he had said was he said to do those things, quote, all the more as you see the day drawing near. So he, in his mind, was thinking about the judgment day when Jesus would finally return and judge all people. That was, had just come out of his metaphorical lips as he wrote that part of the letter. And it's like that jostled in his mind, I need to say something more about that day of judgment. I need to remind people of that it's coming and remind them uh, how to be ready for it. And that's why in this paragraph, the one that follows right on its heels, Uh, He is going to shift gears more from he was exhorting and encouraging. He's going to shift gears now as he puts their eyes on that day of Jesus' return. He's going to shift gears to warning, to warning the readers about what is to come if they fall away from Jesus. And so I'm going to read this, uh, this warning and what a warning it is. So start at verse 26. The author of the book of Hebrews uh, continues under the inspiration of the Spirit writing this. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, 
there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is the word of God. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. It's a sobering text. You can tell just from the reading of it. Uh, but I, I want to summarize this text uh, and its message to them and to us this way. Is that the fear of hell can keep you on the path to heaven. That it can help keep you on the path to heaven. Uh, I want to uh, give three points of explanation of this text and of that statement, and then I want to uh, try to press for two points of application to us, as well as those who are hearing this read and preached this morning. So under this heading, that the fear of hell can help keep you on the path to heaven. The three points of explanation are going to revolve around what I would call the wrath of God. And that phrase is not ever used in this text. That word doesn't show up in this text. But it is behind it and underneath it. It's shot through it. If you're going to make sense of this passage at all and its relevance, you have to understand and know some things about God's wrath. And so I want to share three things by way of explanation about God's wrath that are behind this text or that are explicit in this text as well. The first one would be this, is that God's wrath is deserved by sinners. God's wrath is deserved by sinners. There is language of something being deserved in this text. If you look in the middle at verse 29, there's language there of punishment that will be deserved by people who have walked away from Christ, who have, who have rejected him. Uh, and if you look at that phrase in verse 29, but then jump to the verse right before it in verse 28, this author was pointing, and he's done this earlier in the letter too, but he does it again. He's pointing these Jewish Christians who knew the Old Covenant scriptures. He's pointing them back to some truths about the Old Covenant and the way God related to his people. And he said in verse 28 that when people would set aside the law of Moses, that death would be the consequence, right? That when they rejected him and refused to obey certain laws of Moses, they would die, he says, without mercy, when there was evidence established by two or three witnesses. So there was this consequence, this just consequence, because God was the one establishing it, of death for defying him, for walking away from him. But then note, as he starts verse 29, he says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has done these things? Trampling underfoot the Son of God. Those things we'll talk about in a moment. But hear that logic. He is saying there is something worse than death. Right? There is a judgment worse than death. And it is a judgment, he says, is deserved. But if, if those folks deserved under the old covenant death for defying God and walking away from him, he is saying when people reject the new covenant offer, the new covenant blessings that come through Jesus, he's saying there is a worse consequence than death that is deserved. 
And that consequence is hell. It's eternal judgment, not just a temporal taking of life, of physical life, but an ongoing, eternal executing of God's justice and hell. And he says that it is a deserved punishment. And I don't want that to be lost on us. Because sometimes when we think about hell, we think of that as being an overkill of God, of something that's inappropriate of God to inflict upon people, that it's, it's him going overboard or being reckless, being bloodthirsty, being unreasonable, those sorts of things. But I want you to hear clearly the testimony of Scripture from me this morning that everything God does is just. Everything. Like, he is the one who determines what is just, right? Us small humans don't get to determine what is fair and what is just. Our creator does. Like, he is the one who determines what is an appropriate, a fitting judgment. And I think part of why we are so repulsed by the idea of hell sometimes is because we underestimate God's holiness and we underestimate the seriousness of our rebellion against him. We, we bring God down and down and down to become more like us and we elevate and excuse more and more of our sin to justify ourselves. And then it's no surprise then that we think hell is unfair, that hell is just crazy of God to execute upon people. But this text is saying that punishment of hell is deserved by people who reject Christ, by people who have defied their creator and this, this idea was not just created by the mind of whoever is writing the book of Hebrews. Jesus himself taught frequently, taught clearly about the subject of hell. Uh, even the last week of his life, if you read some of these passion week narratives in the scriptures, Jesus was talking about hell. He was talking about eternal judgment that would come to the enemies of God. Even one phrase that Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 28, has just lodged in my mind and heart, and has been useful for me at times in my life, where Jesus himself said this. Not some hellfire brimstone preacher you think is crazy. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That is the words of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. To to fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so that's point number one, just to explain some background and even make sense of that word deserved there in verse 29, that the wrath of God is deserved by sinners like me. And is deserved by sinners like you. But as this Holy Week begins, this this week where we remember the last week of Jesus' life, it is a fresh opportunity for us, if no other time of year, for us to think about what took place in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago because the wrath of God featured centrally in what took place that week, especially on Friday. Because Jesus went to the cross to bear the wrath of God in our place. And that's the point number two that I want you to see uh, from today's text and from the broader context of Hebrews is that God's wrath was satisfied by Christ. God's wrath was satisfied by Christ, or it was born by Christ, if you want to say it that way, when he went to the cross. And the author of Hebrews, he, he didn't just start with Hebrews, what we call 1026, right? This is preceding everything that has followed it, where he has frequently and often made the point that Jesus came into the world to make himself, to offer himself as a sacrifice in the place of sinners like us. 
that he came to bear the judgment of God. Back in chapter 2, verse 17, months and months ago we saw this. The author said that Jesus Christ came into the world, this is what he said, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What it means to make a propitiation for something is to bear the wrath that should be coming down, to, to take it fully. That it's satisfying God's just demand for death, for uh, punishment to be executed upon those who have rebelled. Jesus came to become that sacrifice for us, to offer himself as a sacrifice that would actually work, a, sac- a substitute that was actually worthy to stand in our place as a human being. The author has even spent several chapters, the last several chapters, describing how those animal sacrifices that they'd offered for centuries and centuries and centuries did nothing to actually bring forgiveness. But the sacrifice of Jesus at the cross finally did afford forgiveness because what was happening there was something profound and infinitely, eternally significant, what was happening at the cross. Jesus was bearing the wrath of God in our place. And we, we so take for granted, I think, or ignore the depths of what was happening there at the cross. We've made the cross into necklaces or decorative pieces or things we put on the back of our cars, things like that. And we must never, ever, ever trivialize what took place at the cross. The world will try, if they even believe it happened, the world will say, well, what was happening there was an innocent man was being killed by other men. That is true. He had done nothing to deserve death, even from fellow human beings. And there were people unjustly putting him to death. But there was way more going on outside Jerusalem that Friday afternoon than just that. What was happening was that God was counting the sins of people like us and laying them upon Jesus, the one who had been innocent and who deserved nothing but reward and favor from God. And having laid those sins upon him, God the Father poured out the fullness of his wrath upon his son. The fullness of it. Can you contemplate that? Like the nails, I think, would have felt like nothing to him. The crown of thorns would have felt like nothing to him. It was more so the wrath of his heavenly father being laid upon him that made him sweat drops of blood the night before as he anticipated it. Right? That this, this forsaking of God the Father as he became a substitute for us. That was what was happening at the cross. Jesus was bearing the wrath of God the Father in our place. And he voluntarily did it. Like we shudder when we really understand hell. We shudder at the thought of the wrath of God coming down on us. We want to do everything we can to run away from that. Jesus ran to it. Right? Like he went as the one who deserved reward, he went and voluntarily laid his life down as a substitute for us, bearing the full wrath of God. He was punished to the point of death. On Good Friday, he was laid in the tomb all throughout Saturday, and on Sunday morning, he was raised from the dead, and we get to celebrate that next Sunday, the best Sunday of the year. But that Jesus who was crushed by God the Father, he offers pardon to all who will come to him in repentance and faith. Not because we are good, because we have cleaned ourselves up, because we have some good enough gift to offer to him, but he made the sacrifice that was necessary for forgiveness. And what he calls us to is a response of laying down our rebellion, uh, of saying, I am sorry I have rebelled against you. Will you please forgive me? 
And if we do that, if we come to him in contrition and repentance and trusting in the sacrifice that he has made on our behalf, he is glad to forgive us. And God the Father is glad to receive us back. So some of you in this room this morning, you are still under the wrath of God. Like it's deserved by you just as it's deserved by me. But the way to be set free from that wrath of God that should come down upon you in eternity is to do what is talked about or at least alluded to in verse 26 is to receive the knowledge of the truth. That, that is more than just mentally checking it off like, yep, I believe Jesus came and died and rose, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's receiving the, the real weight of that, the truth of that, that you deserve God's judgment, but Christ bore it in your place. And your only hope of forgiveness is to rest your soul upon him. And if you will receive that good news, believe that good news, and call upon God to forgive you, he will this very moment, this very morning. And so make this the day. Don't wait for Easter. Don't wait for any further moment. Hear the good news of Jesus crucified for you, bearing the wrath of God for you today, and find forgiveness. Receive forgiveness in him. And I want you to hear me clearly on this, that the fear of hell is not enough to save you. It is not enough to save anyone. I know all sorts of people who grew up hearing about hell and who are terrified by the thought of hell but have no faith in Jesus. They just don't want to go to hell. That is not what I'm calling you to this morning. It's not just to escape hell, but to flee to Jesus to put your trust in him, to rest your soul upon him. That is the faith that saves you. You should be fearful of hell, but you must be faith-filled towards Jesus if you're going to be saved and forgiven by God. So that was the second point, the good news that God's wrath was satisfied by Christ. But as we get to the heart of today's passage, I want you to hear clearly this third point of explanation because he's writing to people who are tempted, who they already received the truth, the knowledge of the truth, right? They were seemingly believing upon Christ, but now they're tempted to go back. And what he is trying to tell them most explicitly in this text today this, is this third thing, that God's wrath will be borne by apostates. God's wrath will be borne by apostates. And if you don't know what that word apostate is, that is okay. It's a... It's a big, long, fancy word for people who fall away from the faith. People who seem to once believe and to trust upon Christ. It seems like they've turned from their sin, but they abandon that faithfulness. They abandon that trust in Christ. Those are who apostates are. And this author is trying to tell them very clearly that if we become that, if we reject Christ, if we walk away from our trust in him, God's wrath will be borne by us. Right? He, he's clearly writing to people who he believes are true believers, like people who he really thinks are trusting and resting their souls upon Christ. Right? There's a few indications of this even in this paragraph. Look at the start of verse 26. He includes himself with them. Right? He says, if we do this, if we do this, this is what's going to happen. He's putting himself in the same boat as them. Like We believe, we have received the knowledge of the truth. Right? And then the, the clearest indicator that he's talking to people who at present seem like they're believing in Christ is down in verse 29, where he talks about, it's hypothetical of this punishment that would be worse, but he talks about them in the middle there. He says that we would have profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Like he, he's addressing people who have been sanctified 
as best as he can tell by the blood of Christ. They've actually come to faith in him. They've been forgiven. They've been made holy. So he's writing to people he believes at present really are following Jesus, really are trusting in him. But what he's doing in this paragraph is he's having them envision what would take place if they stopped trusting in Christ. What will be reality? What will take place if they walk away from the faith? If they someday reject, whether soon or far in the future, someday reject Jesus as their Savior. Stop trusting in him and return to their old ways. To return even for them to a Jewish system of sacrifice. He's having them imagine this. And so he starts in verse 26, this imagining. He says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. That sounds very general and and kind of vague to us where this sinning deliberately, going on sinning deliberately. We could think, well, he's just talking about anybody who has some sort of sin that they commit again and they've committed it again and they've committed it again. We could think he's just talking about a very general repetition of some sinful act. But he's talking about something much more serious than that. And you see it most explicitly in verse 29. What he's imagining is something way more severe than just uh, sinning and then repenting and then sinning that same way again and repenting and sinning. He's imagining something very different from that. In verse 29, he describes it more elaborately, more powerfully. He's imagining this scenario. He says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who, and then he lists three things that he's imagining this person doing, right? He says, who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. Those three phrases combined make it very clear what he's imagining is somebody who has not just fallen into a sin, turned back to the Lord, fallen into a sin, but someone who has utterly rejected Jesus, who has decisively, definitively walked away from Christ. That they, He says that they are trampling underfoot the Son of God. Sit on that phrase for a second. Just think of what he's describing. This one Jesus who God has put all enemies under his feet, we are now putting him under ours. As if we have the audacity to do that. That The Lord of the universe, the second person of the Godhead, it's like we throw him down on the ground like we throw salt on the ground in the winter and we just walk upon him as if he matters nothing. You don't care about the salt crystals on the ground, right? When you walk on them. We don't give thought to the things that we step on. But he's saying these people are walking. They're, they're putting Jesus Christ, the Son of God, under their feet and metaphorically trampling on him by the way that they live their life. He's describing them profaning the blood of the covenant. What that means is he's saying to these people, he's imagining this scenario where you used to think of the blood of Jesus as this sweet, precious thing to you that has actually made you clean, has actually established your righteousness before God. But now you are deeming that very sacrifice, the very blood of Christ in itself as being profane, as being vile to you. Like you no longer see it as a source of life, a source of hope for you, but you see it as something vile, the sacrifice of Christ. You are profaning the blood of the covenant. And he says they're outraged, they would be outraging the spirit of grace. He's imagining this, this reality for a person where the Holy Spirit, who 
made sure that the gospel came to them and who actually gave them that gift of faith, who actually softened their heart and gave them hope in the good news of Jesus, now they are living their life in such a way where they outrage him, where they defy him, where they resist him, where they no longer follow his promptings, no longer follow his leadings back to the Son of God. So those phrases in verse 29 help us make sense of what he said in verse 26, that he's not just talking about a repeated sin, but he's talking about a deliberate, ongoing rejection of Christ from someone who seemingly once believed. And what he wants them to see, I think what the Spirit of God would want us to see from this text is, if that is ever us, what will be? What is going to come? And what he is making clear and explicit in this text is that God's wrath will come upon us. His his wrath will be laid upon us if that is who we become. That is how we begin to live our life and orient ourselves towards Jesus. What he is describing in this text for those people, for apostates who walk away from Jesus, is much more than just a slap on the wrist. Or like, I'm going to, God, imagine, I'm going to reduce your rewards down. I'm going to take away your, your blessings, but I, you're still going to make it in. It, it's nothing remotely like purgatory or something like that, some consequence. What he is saying is to people who reject Jesus, the wrath of God is coming upon you. The wrath of God. He says to them, if you have deliberately walked away from Christ, deliberately rejected him, verse 26, he is saying, for you, there no longer remains a sacrifice for your sins. Like, where are you turning if not to Jesus? Like, where are you turning for forgiveness? Where are you turning for cleansing from your sin? Where are you turning when the wrath of God is is rightfully coming down upon you? If not to Jesus, where are you turning? There is no other sacrifice. He's established that the last several chapters. The only sacrifice that works is Jesus's. And if you're rejecting him and spurning him, what is left for you but the wrath of God to come down upon you? He says what is left for you, verse 27 is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Hear that word, adversaries. That the Lord, if we reject Christ, if we walk away from him, will treat us as the adversaries we are. Like his wrath will rightfully come down upon us. This author cites a few verses from the book of Deuteronomy when he gets down to verse 29, the end of, or sorry, the, of verse 30. He quotes two verses that are very nearby each other in Deuteronomy 32. And he says, we know him who said, so that he's taking them back to their scriptures, right? To the old covenant scriptures. And he's saying, God had said this long ago. God had said, vengeance is mine, I will repay and he had also said that of himself that the Lord will judge his people. Like God has always been this way. It's not as if just vengeance and judgment is something that the New Testament version of God the Father, as if that's even a thing, is, is going to execute upon those who walk away from him. But this has always been the case. Right? He has pointed them back earlier in the book of Hebrews to that first generation that went out of Egypt and rebelled against God. And God brought judgment upon them for rejecting the law. 
And he's saying if, we, if they rejected the law and God brought judgment and death in the wilderness upon them, what is going to happen to us if we reject the new, better covenant that God's given to us in Christ? What is going to happen to us is judgment. It's the wrath of God coming down upon us. And he culminates this passage in verse 31 with the, the, the words that Jonathan Edwards took up and this is the title of his sermon. He says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. To talk about falling into the hands of someone, I think we even still use that phrase. It's like you're, you're vulnerable to them. Like you, you're at their mercy. You can do nothing to stop what is coming. That's what it means to fall into the hands of the living God. What he's imagining is people who had heard the good news of Jesus, they had seemingly temporarily received it, but, but now they're wanting to turn back to the law and maybe establish their righteousness that way with God. Or maybe they're tempted to walk away from Jesus altogether. And what he is trying to have them envision is themselves individually falling into the hands of God because that will take place. Like every person is accountable to our creator. We will someday face his judgment. He's wanting to put them in the place, imagining you falling into the hands of God. What is your appeal? What is going to stop him from executing the judgment that you deserve, that you rightly deserve, that I rightly deserve? What is going to stop him? So a pastor, John Owen, who famously wrote of this passage, he, he was imagining that scenario and he said this, he said, there, for those people in that moment falling into the hands of God, he says, for them there is nothing in the law and there is nothing in the gospel that can be appealed to to stop the punishment. Because they cannot establish their righteousness by the law and they have rejected the gospel, the one true offer of forgiveness. What recourse do they have left? There is no other appeal to make. And if, if that is us, if we have spurned the Son of God, walked away from Him, rejected Him, what is left for us as we fall into the hands of the living God is His wrath and His judgment. So He is seeking, this author is trying to have this be a wake-up call to people who are presently in the faith but are tempted to walk away from it to truly imagine what will be if you do that. To truly imagine what will come of you for eternity if you do. And so I want to briefly think of two points of application. I know that was a lot of explanation, but two points of application for this uh, text because uh, this is a weighty one. It's one I've been praying about, praying for us as we hear it for, but uh, two points of application. And the first one, and this is going to be very simple, but the first one is going to be this, is to fear for yourself. Second one is going to be to fear for others. But at first, I, I want you to let this text hit you. Like, let this text fall upon your ears and your soul. Like, internalize it. We are tempted as people who are around the Bible a lot. When we come across, like, stinging or confronting passages, we like to kind of sidestep that and think, oh, that must have been for so-and-so. Like, that must be for the, those people, not like me. And we, we are intended to hear this ourselves first. Like, every text, hard text that's going to go to anyone else should come through you first. Like, should it come upon you, you should feel the weight of it first. Because we, when soothing texts come, we love soaking that stuff up. Like, yes, this is all for me. Yes, God. And we forget sometimes that's for other people. Uh, but when hard texts like this come, first let it hit you. Let it come into your own heart and soul. 
And to my fellow Christians in the room, this, remember this text was written to people who were presently believing, like who were in the faith, people who were trusting in the Lord, following after him with their life. They were clearly on the path to heaven as far as anyone can tell. But even to them, a text like this came. Right? There was some utility to it. There was something God was trying to do through giving it to these people, some effect he was trying to have in these presently believing people, but who were tempted to walk away, who were tempted to fall away from Christ. And I don't know how to make sense of it coming to believers other than this, how I summarized at the beginning, that the fear of hell can be part of how God keeps Christians on the path to heaven. Like contemplating the realities of what would come if we go off the path, if we stop trusting in Christ, is a tool in God's hand to keep us on the path, to keep us pressing on to the celestial city, like in, in Pilgrim's Progress. Like fear of hell alone can't get us onto the path, right? Only faith in Christ gets us onto the path. But fear of hell can help keep us on the path. It can help us keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, resting our soul upon him. Growth and perseverance in the Christian life is not just done by giving us incentives and just purely pointing us towards heaven. Sometimes we need to contemplate the realities of hell and the realities of judgment that would fall upon us if we were to wander, if we were to stray away from faith in Christ. Warnings are beneficial. They're profitable to us, right? We were watching a basketball game, I think, a couple days ago, and we saw one of those commercials pop up. Uh, I couldn't give you all the details, but you'll know the type of commercial I'm talking about, where there's this lady on there who her, her neck and, and her lungs have just all been trashed because of smoking for years and years and years and years. And she's had to have surgery and has had to get this voice box put in. And you can tell, like, her, her jaw is, is all deformed. It's had to have some things done to it because of damage that's been done from smoking. You guys know these commercials I'm talking about, right? The point of those commercials is to take people who are tempted to smoke or who are presently smoking and to say, this is where that path leads. Like, stay on the path of health. Like, stay on the path that is right and good for you. So we're familiar with this, right? Or if we live by a busy road, we tell our kids, we want them to be afraid of the road, right? Like, so we tell, we try as much as we can to say, this is what's going to happen if you run out into this road. And we try to scare them straight, right? We, we, it's useful to keep them in the yard if we tell them about what happens if they go outside of the yard. Right? We're, we know this dynamic as human beings, and God is doing that with us here in this text. He's saying, if you stray from this path of resting in Christ, this is what is coming. Like, judgment is coming to you. And the scriptures themselves are littered with examples of people uh, who this has happened to. People who seem to be in the faith, people who seem near to Christ, seem trusting in Christ, and who ultimately walk away from him. And that could be us. We have to have a reality to acknowledge that. These people, he believed were believers, but he knew they were capable of falling away, that they were capable of rejecting Christ, true of them. But he uses a warning as a, a way to compel them on. And thinking of Holy Week coming up, I think probably the exhibit A of somebody who walked away from faith in Christ is Judas, right? Who walked with him, Jesus, for months and months and months and serving him and, and caring for his needs. But somehow Satan got a foothold in his life and he was given over to him and he ultimately was the one to betray our Savior. 
and sealed it with a kiss. Like no one would have guessed that of Judas three years before that, right? Yet it's what he became. And it's beneficial for us to not just hear of heaven and the reward and blessing that awaits us, although we must remember that, keep our eyes fixed upon that, but at times to have our attention drawn once again to the judgment that should have been ours and that will be ours if we stray from faith in Christ, if we reject this gospel that is given to us. So first, I want you to let this text hit you, fellow Christian. Like, let it be a text to keep you on the path of faith, to to say, I don't want that, obviously. I I don't want to stray from the Lord, but the judgment that would come just makes me that much more want to stay on the path of faith and trust in my Savior, Jesus. I want to make one clarifying note. This text can be greatly misused by our enemy when we look at verse 26 if we think of sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth sometimes people take this text and think christians when they're saved should never sin on purpose again and if they do it's a sign that they're apostate that is not what this text is teaching i'll just say that just matter of factly there are so many texts that make it very clear that people who truly are born again do still sin right But what happens when we sin as believers is that we repent of it, we confess it, and we receive the experience of forgiveness again. Not that we weren't saved and we jump back into being saved and we stop being saved. It's not like that. But experientially, we confess our sin to the Lord and he forgives us. He lets us know his forgiveness again and we're restored. And there's this process that will continue till the day we die of sinning, repenting, sinning, repenting, sinning, repenting. What this text is describing is people who have stopped the repenting part, have stopped the trusting part, and they're, they're getting hardened into the, the sin patterns of their life and the rejection of Christ. So please do not hear this text as condemning you if you struggle with sin. I struggle with sin as the one preaching this text, but I also come to Christ with my sin, and that's what you must do as well again and again and again until we reach our heavenly home. So first, let this text hit you. Let it strike a fear in yourself of the judgment that would come if you walk away from Christ. But the second thing would be this, is to fear on behalf of others. Because they might not be fearing for themselves. Sometimes they need people to fear for them, right? Like our kids don't know to fear the road like they ought, right? And they need us to try to awaken that fear in them, to let them see the danger that they are in. I think we are painfully oblivious to this. I speak at least for myself at times, painfully and willingly sometimes oblivious to the reality of what many people we know are facing, of where they are heading. We just blind ourselves to it. We don't like to think about it. But I want you seriously to contemplate, every, pers- every believing person here, I want you to contemplate sometime today and the days ahead, how many people do you know? Like real name, you could name them people who once professed faith in Jesus, who once would maybe sing right next to you at church, like who you would talk about the Lord with, who, who you loved coming to the scriptures with, and who now could care less about Jesus, or maybe who worse have utterly rejected him and think what you believe now is nonsense, what you believe is idiotic maybe even. How many people do you know that are in that state? Most of us could probably name many people, or at least a few, who are in that state. Then I want you to go a step further and think, where are they heading? 
Like, what awaits them on this day of the Lord? Like, they are heading to this day where they will fall into the hands of the living God. Right? And they will not, in that day, be able to just appeal to some, God, I, I walked down an aisle when I was 12 or 13, or when my mom and dad talked to me when I was a little kid, and I, I didn't want to go to hell, and I, I said a prayer. And, but then I profaned the blood of the covenant, right? And I trampled underfoot the Son of God. There is no fooling our judge, Right? Like he knows if we just said some prayer to just get somebody off my back or if it was just some flash in the pan thing that hasn't persisted in my life. Like he knows those things. I, I want you to contemplate real flesh and blood people in your life who need to be awakened. If It's not up to us to make their hearts see it, but it's up to us to warn and caution them. Think how many people are on that path to destruction who used to gladly be on the path to the the heavenly city with us. We believe this doctrine, I believe this doctrine, that often gets summarized as once saved, always saved. That is a a biblical truth, as, as far as I understand the scriptures. But that is a doctrine, this eternal security that has, has lulled so many people into rebellion and against Christ and rejection of the gospel who think they believed it, who think that they were sincere, but then their life shows nothing, no fruit whatsoever, no repentance, no faith in Christ at all. They believe they were told, once saved, always saved. And so then they think they are good with God. And they are not. Like, believing in the gospel is not just some transaction I make, like I swipe a card once when I'm a kid and I heard the good news and I pray a prayer and then nothing else matters. Like, it does matter. It confirms whether this was true or not, whether God's actually changed you or not. Your life confirms that or it denies that very clearly. And we do not serve people well if we watch them walk in rejection to Christ and we mentally do these games where we think, well, they prayed a prayer when they were a kid. Or I remember when they used to be serious about the Lord. If they are seriously born again, they will come back to Christ. Like they will get back onto the path. They will come back to repentance and faith. This is what church discipline is all about. As an aside, this, there's a reason Jesus taught us as Christians that when people start to go astray, that we don't just watch them do so. That we don't just watch them walk towards judgment, that we pursue them and say, brother or sister, you cannot be doing this. Like, you need to repent. Like, God has spoken clearly about this thing. We don't come to them with hate and anger and condescension, but we come appealing to them and say, please come back to the only source of forgiveness, the only path of life. If you don't come back to this, you are doomed. You are going to fall into the hands of the living God. When we don't pursue those who are walking away from Jesus, we are defying the commands of Jesus, right? Jesus told us to go after them. Jesus told us to pursue them. He told us to seek to draw them back. And not only are we defying Jesus, but we are harming that person. And we may think that we're helping them. We may think by trying to just keep things, uh, kind of be a pacifist, and I don't want to stir things up with them. If that is our tact, is just to bite our tongue constantly when we see them walking towards judgment, they are going to hell. Like they are on a path to hell. We must lovingly, patiently, 
Pursue them. Call them to repentance. Call them to see the danger that they are in. And I know that that is hard to do. That is awkward to do. But this week, I was thinking about this, this week that the world calls Holy Week, we can call Holy Week too, I guess, is a golden opportunity for us to be able to talk about people's souls with them. To, to ask them, if you know people like that in your life who are walking away clearly from the Lord, seek to have a conversation with them, inquire with them at least, like, where are things at with you spiritually? And I would do what this author does and try to press them beyond just the present moment to try as much as it's up to you to press them to think about the day of their death. To think about the day of judgment that is drawing near. And not in some arrogant way that you think you are somehow incapable of becoming like where they are. But humbly, graciously ask them, what appeal are you going to make to the Lord? Like, by what reason will God pardon you or forgive you? Do you even think you need forgiveness at all? Then make a simple appeal to them to come back, especially if it's someone who used to profess faith, to come back to their former profession. Say, you believed this once, believe it again, brother or sister. Like, this is your only hope for eternal life and forgiveness. Remind them, not just, hear this, don't just remind them of judgment to come, remind them of that but also remind them of the mercy of God that's available to them in Christ. Because there are some who feel like Christians won't receive them back. There are some like, who feel like God would never accept them back. I have gone too far. I have strayed too far. My heart's become too hard. It is not. Like the offer of the gospel comes to them as clearly today, this week, as it did when they first supposedly believed it long ago. And we must remind them of judgment to come, but remind them of the offer of mercy and pardon that can be rightfully theirs if they turn and believe in Christ again. I think it's unfortunate that Jonathan Edwards called his sermon, although I get what he was going after, that he called it sinners in the hands of an angry God. Anger is a right description of God towards sinners, but I think sometimes we hear a, a phrase like that, and we maybe even read a text like this. I was thinking about this. And there are some who view this whole idea of, like, you need to, to return to faith or judgment's coming to you, and we think, man, that makes God seem like this angry, almost like abusive father towards me. Like, toe this line, get back in line, or else. Like, I'm going to crush you, I'm going to embarrass you, I'm going to punish you, stay on my good side or else. That's sometimes how the world views our creator is just as pure anger, as being vindictive or just messing with us, being cruel to us. But God is much more than just an angry God, right? Like we, have, we don't just have to fall into the hands of an angry God. We get to fall as Christians into the hands of the living God and to fall into the hands of the merciful God, right? Our Heavenly Father is not cruel or vindictive. He is just. But our Heavenly Father is a merciful, compassionate, forgiving, gracious God, right? And this week we remember that more than any other time of year, that He sent His Son. If you want to know His mercy in addition to His justice, look at the cross. Look at the cross that we're going to celebrate this Friday because God sent His Son to die in our place. He didn't just sit in the heavens and, and say, I'm going to condemn and judge these people, but he sent Christ to save us 
to die for us, to suffer for us. And so we don't just have to fall into the hands of the living or angry God. We can stay. We can be received in the hands of our merciful Father. Amen? Amen. Let's stay there. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to sing one more song.